Hello and welcome back to our fourth episode of the Apocalyptic Fig. Our fourth episode, we have with us a very special guest host in the person of my brother, Cole. Cole, he's living in the Twin Cities. And so an official welcome, Cole. Thank you for joining me for our fourth episode. I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Cole. I am Father Ross's brother. I am up in the Twin Cities now, but I grew up with Ross in Iowa, and then I went to St. Ambrose and got my degree in um, theology and sociology. And then right after that, I went to St. John's University up in Minnesota, where I got my master's in systematic theology. And now I am um, the director of adult and childhood formation at St. Joseph Catholic Community in New Hope. This is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, and so Deacon John is going to spend some time with his family this week. Him and I are going to get together and record our next episode next week. But Cole and I are going to take some time today to talk a little bit about one of our combined favorite topics, and that is scripture and how to read the Bible or just reading the Bible in general. And the reason that I think that it is my favorite subject is, is, it, it, is it is the subject that very few Catholic Christians know a whole lot about. We are not particularly good at reading the Bible. And when we do read the Bible, we're not exactly sure how we should be reading it. Absolutely. The tradition of Catholics reading the Bible is a very short tradition. We didn't start critically thinking about the Bible as an organized religion of laity until Vatican II. So we don't have endless depth of of 2000 years of knowledge on biblical study because laity haven't scratched the surface for more than, I don't know, a few decades now. I, I have this teen here at the parish and she asks all the best questions, all of the best ones. And they are all, all the questions she asks, all of them deal or focus in on different aspects of scripture or something that I, that I preach about on a particular mm. weekend. And the most recent question that she asked me was about how we reconcile a jealous God or a God who is jealous a great deal of the time with this kind, loving, person in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so she, she just shared with me, she said, I've always heard that, you know, God, God is slow to anger and rich or abundant in kindness and mercy. And so how do we get from there to jealousy or from jealousy to slow to anger, rich in mercy? Because in our heads, the two can't 
um, can't coincide at the same time in the same God. Um, and I think there's just so much confusion or uncertainty about who God is, what the Bible shares with us about discovering who God is, and how we should even begin to read the Bible in the first place. That is such a good question. And <laughs> also foundational question and also impossible to answer. There's <laughs> because there's so often this idea of like the God of the Old Testament, this anger, angry, vengeful God, and then uh, seemingly 180 to the God of the New Testament, this kind and compassionate God. And the thing is that we have to believe that it's the same God. We can't differentiate between the, old, the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, the New Testament. We have to understand that God is multifaceted in endless ways that we can't understand, which is a frustrating answer. Yeah, <laughs> But definitely. also, we can't begin to scratch the surface of who God is, but we try and we should try. But that's not an... Uh, We'll, ne we'll never unlock the, the, the truth of who God is fully. What I, what I ended up sharing with her was, <clears throat> God is those things, slow to anger, rich in compassion and mercy. God is fully present in this person that we see in Jesus Christ, who heals the sick, who welcomes the sinner, right? Who dines with tax collectors and prostitutes. And then you've got this God who is absolutely jealous, who wants all of you all of the time. And if you don't give him that, he's going to call you out. So they're two in the same person, the same person right. of God. This person who is slow to compassion or slow to anger, rich in compassion, but who wants all of you all of the time. And that's the way that I answered her question or this particular right. question. <laughs> right. I, I wouldn't say that those are incompatible truths either. Certainly Very not. clearly, yeah. <laughs> I would say that we feel that we feel those things too. Exactly. Like with yeah. our spouse or with our, like a particular best friend, right? We are slow, <laughs> we are slow to anger, hopefully, rich in love, <laughs> But also we get jealous. And simply because God is God does not mean that God is not jealous. Because if scripture teaches us anything, it's that God wants all of us. And we are very bad at gifting that over. Amen. <laughs> so may it be. <laughs> okay, so getting into these questions about how we read scripture, how would you share with individuals or folks who have literally no idea where to start? Because I think this is probably the biggest question that I get or that people have. I don't even know how to start. I don't even know what it means to start. Do you mean where to start in the Bible or how to start reading any part of the Bible? I would say how to start reading any part of the Bible. <laughs> was, I mean, the second Start at question, the beginning if you want. <laughs> yeah. The second question is like, is a, is a different question in terms of like prayer sure. maybe, but I would say sure. like how, right? How do we even yeah. start? 
I think the first thing that I always do is think about the genre of what I'm reading. Okay, right. Great, so great word, but let's break it down. Yeah. So any anytime you go to Half Price Books or the library or Barnes and Noble, there are sections. You have romance novels, you have poetry, you have fantasy novels, you have history, right? All of these things exist. They're they're the genres of of literature. In the same way, the Bible is a compilation of tons of different writings from years and years and years. We have poetry. There's, um, you know, bits of history and acts. Um, but then there's also elements of fantasy and myth in Genesis and in Revelation where there's dragons and giants. And so I think initially you need to recognize what genre you're reading. Are you reading something that, you know, is a spiritualized um, form of, you know, a quote unquote history, like the gospels, the spiritualized literature about something that they experienced? Or is it um, some great fantastical myth, like the, the early um, writings in Genesis, where obviously that's not a history. And, <laughs> and then you turn to the, to, to the Psalms, and it's all this beautiful poetry, this emotional, imaginative language. Um, and so I think recognizing what you're reading, what genre you're in, helps uh, to get you in that mindset of how to read it. Not only recognizing it, but like when you're reading it, not playing tricks on yourself. Prime example is the story of Noah's Ark. This story yeah. is just wrapped up so much in this beautiful, like mythological type of fantasy storytelling. There are giants. There is this massive flood that covers the entire earth. There is this wizened old man in the person of Noah with his family who build a large ark. And in this ark put two of every single living creature. Does this sound like something that could happen just in your regular nonfiction story? No. Absolutely exactly. not. <laughs> so we need to not trick ourselves into thinking that just because it's in the Bible means that it is not only real, but historically factual. Exactly. Just because you're reading some fictionalized fantasy mythological uh, literature does not mean that it doesn't contain truths. Yes. Yes. There are a lot of stories that in the Bible that are not based on any sort of factual anything. And we recognize that, but that doesn't discount the meaning that they have, the truth that they hold. Yeah, there's a lot to break down in just these two statements that you made. Yeah. <laughs> because all of our, like all of the Catholic understanding of reading scripture hinges on these two things that you just shared. These are the type of questions that fifth graders and sixth graders and high schoolers are asking. And these are the type of questions that we, just as general Catholics, are not well-equipped to answer. So I go into 
a fifth grade classroom and the kids ask me, Father, were Adam and Eve real people? That's always the first question. Right. <laughs> Great. <Yes. laughs> Thank you, fifth graders. Great question. My short answer is going to be no. But let's break down what that no means. And so then we kind of take this step-by-step -step process of opening scripture and reading what the beginning of our Bible tells us. First of all, the genre of the beginning of Genesis is a myth from the beginning. It follows this cycle that you find in fairy tales where things will happen in order with just slight tweaks in between. And it builds up to this, you know, the seventh day. But then the very next sentence, the story is starts over. It creation starts over completely. And so you recognize that it's a myth. And then Adam and Eve are in the second half of that. And so we can recognize that Adam and Eve is a myth, but that there are fundamental truths about our faith contained in these two different stories, even if they are myth. Yeah. The things that we learn, the truths that we learn, regardless of the factual inaccuracies of the myth, are God created the heaven and the earth. God created everything from nothing. God created lovingly humanity. God made us in God's image and likeness. So we get, we open the Bible at the very beginning and we hear this really like intense, beautiful seven day adventure of God creating everything out of nothing. And it's the scripture that we read every Easter vigil. You get to the end of that, you turn the page, just like you said, and then the very next sentence scraps that entire creation narrative and starts a whole new creation narrative. Okay, so forget about all of these past seven days that you just read about. We're going to tell you a whole different way that the world was created. Mm -hmm. This is where we really get into the nitty gritty of the, the rib coming out of Adam, God creating Eve out of this rib the snake entering into the garden or paradise, tempting Eve, Eve gifting Adam the apple. They recognize they're naked. They fall away. God kicks them out. And then the story continues from there. Then they have two boys. One kills the other and then so on further into Genesis. But we need to recognize that there are two different creation narratives, two distinct creation narratives that share with us the beauty and the truths of God. One of the things that I love to do is I love to preach on Adam and Eve. Because what I do is I break it down in so <clears throat> when we look at their lives, or we just look at this entire story, what we see is we see God creating out of pure love. 
God wanting to share God's own self and God's own life and God's own love with creation. And so he creates out of nothing. And in that nothing is everything beautiful. But because humans are so selfish and self-centered, the very first thing they do is turn in on themselves to desire power and prestige and honor and all of these things. And so what I love about the story of Adam and Eve is it kicks off the narrative that runs throughout the entire rest of the Bible, which is God chasing human beings down repeatedly, throwing rocks, pebbles at their closed windows and us just turning away and running in the opposite direction failing to fall into God's arms or failing to open those windows and acknowledge that relationship. And that is the absolute genius of scripture and the way, just the way that it's like prepared and written. I like that you mentioned that it kicks off that, that cycle of humans turning in on themselves and God chasing after them. Because I think people look at the story of Adam and Eve and think, well, if we were in paradise, we wouldn't do that. But then they forget the hundreds of stories in the Old Testament where that is just a cycle over and over and over again. Yeah, right. Where God is constantly trying to win over the people (laughs) because they turn away into something else. Exactly. All we need to do is look at our own lives. Yeah. It doesn't stop with the Old Testament. (laughs) Exactly. We come to church every Sunday or maybe every Sunday when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. And then we go home and at the very first chance we get, we will turn on the next person so that we can turn in on ourselves. And scripture gifts us this place or this space and this prayer so that we can correct the wrongs of Adam and Eve, this fictional story that tells us the truths of exactly who we are. But you don't, if you don't think truths. that you would take that apple from that snake and take a bite out of it, you are lying to yourself. You're kidding yourself. Absolutely you would. Do you not want the, pow- the knowledge of the power of good and evil? Yeah, you do. You're going to eat that apple, right? (laughs) You're going to eat that apple. Stop lying to yourself. That's what this story of Adam and Eve is about. Mm -hmm. It's not so much how God created the world. It is how God creates out of pure love, unending beauty, and how we just love to reject it. Every step of the way we reject it. And then we have these like brief, beautiful moments, God moments, whereby everything is right in the world and we feel totally whole, totally complete. And then the very next moment we turn around and we stab somebody in the back. And so God, God has enough of it. And so Christ is born out into the world, becomes the victim takes all of whatever that is, this backstabbing is, onto himself, hangs on the cross, becomes the ultimate sacrifice in the hope 
that maybe we might learn something from it. Scripture should really be um, the one subject in Catholicism that we hit the hardest. I learned more about the Christian faith in my Scripture 101 class with Micah Keel at St. Ambrose than I learned in the entirety of catechism as a child. Yeah, same. And I think like if we had this solid structure of understanding what scripture says, how it says it, and what it means for us, everything else would be so easily falling into place. That is like our sacraments. We spend right. as a church, so you know this, right? As the director of faith formation, we spend so much time and energy trying to teach these kids and adults about the sacraments when in reality what we really ought to be doing as an entire church is spending that time teaching scripture exactly i think catholics have this rich history of tradition but they don't have a scriptural understanding of where this tradition comes from yeah we've had these traditions crop up and evolve and build themselves up for centuries millennia and we don't know the the scriptural foundations of them and if we if we knew the bible we wouldn't have to talk only about tradition we wouldn't have to have classes just on Bible because we would have a full understanding, a well-rounded understanding of what the sacraments are and yeah. why we why we believe in the sacraments and what that tradition is for us. We just don't know enough about scripture to feel comfortable talking about it, which is really just an unfortunate thing. When we look at scripture, we just tend to get a little bit hesitant or like we're a little put off by it right. for a multitude of reasons. First, because it makes us uncomfortable, but we also just tend to shy away from it because we just don't understand it, which is totally acceptable and reasonable. But we have to come to a place where we just kind of delve in and we recognize that what we are about to embark on is a spiritual journey and not a historically accurate to the T factual journey that we have to go on. This is why I tend to not like reading scripture from beginning to end. Right. <clears throat> because it's not meant to be a historical narrative. It's also not a work of fiction where like you read the Hunger Games beginning to end so that you know what's going to happen. It's this ever ancient, ever new deep dive into experiencing God as you experience yourself. You become enraptured in this story. That's what scripture is meant to do. Get enraptured in the story. And so learn more about who you are as you learn more about who God is for you. I love that. That's, yeah. I mean, that's why we read <laughs> scripture during church. I think the, the fact of the Bible as a book of faith is lost in a lot of ways in this search for historical accuracy and uh, factualness and 
you know, even the, the scientific part of it. I think we lose that idea that the Bible was written to be a book of faith, a spiritual journey for us. One of the things I talk about every, every year, and it's coming up, that time of year is coming up, is the absolute massacre that we have allowed to happen to our nativity stories. <laughs> I, I knew exactly where you were going there. <laughs> it is it is one of the crosses that I am prepared to die on, <laughs> that we have taken these two absolutely phenomenal and different narratives of Jesus's birth, because we only get two of them, of Jesus's birth, Matthew and Luke, and we just clapped them, shoved them together, and in that space, we have created these neat, beautiful, pristine nativity scenes, manger scenes that are not biblically accurate. And I cannot stand it yes. because in that spot, in that space, we are losing so much of the beauty and the truth of those two very distinct narratives. Yeah, and I think... I don't want to pin everything on factually inaccurate nativities, but I think, <laughs> sure. fair, I think nativities are a, a big reason that they forget that there is an entire other story about it. Exactly. Because in nativities, they see both of them. Exactly. And that's our idea of Christmas. That's our idea of the birth story. I think maybe I do not enjoy nativity scenes because when I was going through college, Micah, who is at St. Ambrose, Micah Keel, he was just sharing with us just the ramifications of something that we don't even think twice about, right? Manger scenes are just an absolute staple in our faith during Christmas. We don't even think of the ramifications that that one beautiful, seemingly innocent manger scene does for our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So in this one story, we have Jesus being rejected from the world. There's no room for him. And so what Mary does is, Mary and Joseph, they find a spot, and it's the dirt. And Jesus is born into the dirt of a stable. And off in the distance, as Jesus is born into this dirt pile, the angels break open the heavens, and who do they appear to? Not your powerful, not your men and women in authority. They appear to these shepherds, these lonely, poor shepherds off on a hill. They break open the heavens, they sing their rejoices, and then they send the shepherds to greet him. While at the same time, we've got this whole other beautiful narrative of Jesus being born into a house, a literal home with two loving parents and the kings come from the east. There's not three of them. They're not wise and they're certainly not magi. They're not coming from the Orient. They're just kings from the east and they come and they find Jesus in his home and in his home, they gift 
the gifts from themselves that they feel is fit for this king that sits in front of them, rejecting Herod and going home in other ways. Two very beautiful stories that tell us two different truths about the person of Jesus Christ, the kingship of Jesus Christ in one, and this lowliness, this dirty savior in the other. Both we know are found in the person of Jesus Christ because we celebrate both of them at the same time. We literally just celebrated the solemnity of Christ the King. And where does, what is Christ's throne? It is a cross splintered into the earth. And what is his crown? It's a crown of thorns. The kingship with the dirt, <laughs> right? The kingship with the yeah. dirt. And so what we do is we smash them together. We make them these beautiful little manger scenes mm -hmm. and we've lost all of that. Right. Oh. It was a travesty. <laughs> I'm being dramatic. It's not a travesty. But what it is, is it's just robbing us of the beauty that scripture really contains. And we, just going about our everyday lives, we don't think about that enough or a lot or as often as we should. You have these stories in scripture, maybe more particularly in the New Testament, about Jesus walking around, teaching, preaching, performing miracles. And each one, each gospel tells them in a very different way. The multitude of, of understandings that we get from it, we get that, that is shown to us in the, in the four gospels, the different ways that the authors of those gospels wrote them down meant something to their community. There's a reason that we got four different stories because the people who were living this tradition found importance in, in four different versions. They, they each had some different understanding and lucky us, fortunate for us, we get to see all four of them together. Yeah. We get to see this multitude of understandings of who Jesus is and what the gospels are. Those communities, they got one of them or, you know, two of them, depending on when they were written. But now in 2020, we are so lucky to have so many representations and understandings of who Jesus is. And it's great because those gospels were written in community right matthew mark luke and john were not secretaries they they weren't transcribing something that was you know a, a story given to them they were living this tradition and they wrote them in community their own communities and now we get to break them open in our communities mm. and we get to find our communal understandings yeah i guess maybe we should be clear that each of the four gospels is written by a different community. So a community right. focused or centered around the person of Mark or a leader named Mark. And then a person, right, a community formed around the community of John mm -hmm. who helped to write or wrote 
the Gospel of John. I, and they all have very different understandings of who the person of Jesus was. And they all are written post-Jesus, and some of them are written so far post-Jesus. And so we, not only do we see these communal understandings of Jesus, we see this evolution of understanding of Jesus. So Mark, which is the first gospel written that we have in the Bible, even though it comes second after Matthew, Mark is the first one. It's also the shortest. Mm-hmm. It also has Jesus being the bluntest. It is there's, very to the point. <laughs> there's, there is no flowery language. Jesus isn't spending a lot of time like saying beautiful things and performing elaborate, beautiful miracles. Everything is quick to the point. This is who Jesus is. So Mark is the first one. When you read Mark next to John, the the evolution of those two the evolution of that understanding john holds the most theologically rich dialogue of who jesus is it's also where we get almost all of our understanding of the eucharist not only that but also almost the entire theology of jesus as divine and human we get glimpses of that, but the the rich theological understanding of sacramentals and of the divinity of Jesus cont- are contained in John, which neither of which are in Mark. So right. there's this evolution from there, from Mark, and then so a couple decades later to John, where the communities were also going through this evolution, right? They didn't just get to John. John's community came from something. Right. And we we can see that in Luke and Matthew, right? Mark is short, but then we get the humanity of Jesus in one and this merciful Jesus in one. And then the other one, we get the kingship of Jesus and all of the the miracles. Um, and And through those, we get to John. And I think at the same time, we get to see the evolution of Paul as he's writing his letters. Mm-hmm. So those, those letters, the letters of Paul are the earliest, earliest forms of writing that we have in the Bible. Those came not decades after Jesus was born or after Jesus died and was resurrected, but just mere years. Paul, never having met Jesus in person or in real life, goes on this journey of evangelization and of you know this journey of discipleship. And in his letters, we also see an evolution of our understanding of Jesus Christ. And Paul's own personal understanding how it evolves through his journey and through his mission, which is just, it's just a great personal approach or personal reading under, as we come to understand who Paul is, that he has this, he has this journey that he is on as well. As, as much as he preaches to these communities, his letters tell us more about who he is and who he is becoming than they do about the communities that he's teaching to. But these are things that we don't often think about. 
that's such an interesting point of view that there's this communal aspect to the gospels, but then concurrently there's this personal testimony that we get from Paul throughout his letters. And very, very personal. Yeah. He gets very personal and he's not afraid to be personal about his own experiences, about his experiences with the church hierarchy, namely Peter, James, and John, <laughs> mm -hmm. or his run-ins with the Roman Empire, or his run-ins with various leaders in communities or communities as a whole or just individuals. I think what this shows us, if we really want to think well and deep about it, is that the both communal aspect of the Gospels, how they are written, and the personal aspect of Paul's letters, how they are written, coincide with how we today experience scripture. We experience it both communally at mass or, you know, at communal prayer or whatever, but we also need to experience it personally. We need to experience scripture, Jesus, personally. Otherwise, it's just kind of words in the air. I think that's beautiful. The, the New Testament in its form, in the ways that there is both communal and personal progress and storytelling and understanding of the faith, that that mirrors our understanding, that we are so lucky to have the communal understanding of the Bible. We get that from, you know, church documents in our tradition in breaking open the word during mass in Bible studies. We get that person-to-person um, -person communal understanding of who Jesus is and how we interact with the God who loves us. Uh, but then we are also, we, we need to personally read the Bible. We could, we, it's easy to get the communal parts of it. Yeah. We get that in church. But there is a, a personal spirituality missing from the Bible. And I think that it can't be either or. Because we know what a, a hyper-personalized reading of, of the Bible does. The Bible is not your uh, a crystal ball. Right. Like we know what yielding it individually looks like because it's all the bad examples of scripture that we know. Yeah. It's these two in in relation with each other, the communal and the personal. I think that gives us a balanced view of scripture. I will say like if you've ever like heard a homily and you thought man, this homily is like, this homily is preached just for me. Like this is my, this homily is for me. Then you really ought to read the Bible some more. <laughs> because all of, all of scripture is for you and for me, right? Like if, if I read the story of Peter denying Jesus, and then when that raven crows and he recognizes in the deepest of sorrows what he's done and he runs away and he weeps i read that and i think 
I do that every day of my life. How many times mm -hmm. am I literally rejecting Jesus and in Jesus's place, putting something else or putting myself, which is what Peter did, putting his, he put his own security in front of his love for Jesus. How often am I putting my own security in front of, or my own comfort in front of my love of Christ? Every single piece of scripture teaches us something and challenges us even more. Going back to what, something we mentioned just previous though, what scripture is not is a weapon to be used to further my own personal agenda or personal politics or personal view of religion. Because every time we do it, we will fall and we will crumble. Because while scripture is meant for us to be personally challenged, it is not for me to personally use it to knock you out or to kill right. you, which is what the church has done a lot. There are a multitude, there are so many, you know, for every person, there's a different interpretation of scripture, but that doesn't mean that they are all equally <laughs> as valid of interpretations. If they're not grounded in some form of study, if, there's, if they're not grounded in some understanding of tradition, if they're not grounded in understanding of what other scripture says, cross-referenced, you know, if they're, if, if an interpretation is being plucked blindly out of the Bible, then there is almost no chance that it can be a good interpretation. And the reason being, God does not call to us as individuals. God calls us and confirms us through community. In our use of scripture, if we ever are using scripture to point something out from me to you, I'm just going to put a forewarning out that if you or I or we ever have that tendency to use scripture to further my own agenda, that we just keep our mouth closed, go back to the drawing board, read scripture again and again and again, turn the microscope on me and allow God to work on me through this scripture first before I ever go out and put it on you. This is why, like for me personally, this is why I spend all week writing a homily. This is why like when the bulletin is due on Tuesday mornings here at the parish, this is why I don't have a message in the bulletin about what I'm preaching about that next weekend because I haven't figured it out yet. I spend all week writing a homily so that what I do on Saturday night and Sunday morning is not so much about me pontificating at you about what you need to do better. It's really me preaching to me. 
I've spent and all sometimes week. Sometimes you'll call me on Saturday morning and say, I rewrote the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I tossed it. I rewrote the whole thing. <laughs> Church is in five hours. <laughs> Gotta go. Yeah. But scripture is, it's, it's so rich, but it can be so, it can be so powerful. And we need to read it and use it for the betterment and the growth of me personally and our community living. I wish that um, we just as a whole spent more time reading it, breaking it open. It's one of the things that our Protestant brothers and sisters do really well. It's just that our understanding is so different than the understanding of so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, that when we read it, we need to come at it from a very different perspective. That is a Catholic Christian perspective. The richness of our tradition, the richness of the genre that is contained in scripture, the knowledge and the courage to be true to ourselves when we're reading scripture. We've probably talked about um, an eighth of the entire Bible and not even in depth, <laughs> that eighth. Yeah. <laughs> scratched the surface. And as you, as you shared at the beginning of <clears throat> our chat, it's only just been within the past 60-ish years that the reading of scripture has really been opened to everybody, accessible, and not only accessible, but with the ability to learn more and learn critically about scripture. That's, it's only just happened in the grand scheme of church history. Yeah, I think that's so important because if you're feeling disheartened about or discouraged or intimidated by breaking open the word and reading the Bible by yourself individually, personally, just know that out of the 2000 years, it, and <laughs> it, it, our, this tradition has only begun 60 years ago. You're a pioneer. Yeah, a pioneer right. Scripture studies. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great way to put it. We are all in this together as a community, as Paul intended, as Peter intended, as the church was intended to be built and to be grown. So we're all pioneers trying to figure it out together. The important thing is to figure it out, to like wanna work and wanna read and wanna learn. Otherwise, we're just going to be in the same boat we are, which is a lackluster understanding of the sacraments and a general disinterest about going to church, which is where we are and which is where we've been for a while now. Yeah. If we, you and I, all of us, we, if we want to learn more about our faith and if we want to learn more about God, then I would suggest we start with scripture. And we ask the tough questions to the people who might be able to answer them with us, with us, not for us, with us. Absolutely. Ask the tough questions like this teenager does to me. 
She asks the good, rich, hard questions. And then we talk about it and then we chew on it. We don't come to like this great, beautiful, neat, pristine little answer. We chew on it. We figure out what it means for us. And that's scripture. Thank you for joining me. Um, and I hope that it was okay and that maybe someday you'll come back in the future. Maybe. Maybe, no. think, about, maybe <laughs> think about it. <laughs> All right. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, this is this is just a normal Wednesday night chat for me and Roz, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, it is, which is what great. What else is new? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, be well, and I will talk to you soon. Likewise.